Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 58 of Archaeo Animals. From the front lines to the trenches, animals in warfare. In today's episode, we'll be talking all about the zoo archaeology of, well, animals used in warfare. So stick around and join us for that. As always, I'm Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me, Ivana Palanga. So yeah, this is actually a listener-requested episode, so thanks to our listener Richard for suggesting this. As always, please let us know if you have any special requests for future episodes. We always like to try and do our best to schedule in these kind of episodes that people actually want to hear that aren't video game ones. Or or, or that also are video game ones. Yeah. But I mean, this particular episode, it worked out quite well, actually, because we were actually planning on doing an episode on animals in warfare. And it ever so happened that Richard has suggested that we did something along those lines. So we just pushed it back or push it forward rather and so here we are yeah i mean it's that thing of we just somehow managed to not really talk about animals used in warfare which is surprising because it's a pretty extensive history you know they've been used as mounts for warriors and soldiers and you know pack mules for supplies and munitions as support animals for sending messages and you know in some cases even as weapons themselves so today's episode will be a pretty brief look at the various roles that animals have played in warfare throughout history and how we can see this in the archaeological record so i figured what we can do first is run down a couple of species because let's be real as always we could probably spend a mini series on this why not? Um, I mean, we could, um, but you know, we'll do we'll do this as a taster episode, and then if you want to see more, let us know. And I guess just as a quick warning, because uh, among some of the things that we'll mention there are sort of relatively unpleasant things to put yeah. it mildly that are done to animals. So just 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 be aware. Yes, of course. But I guess well, when talking about warfare, one of the first animals that comes to mind is no, not that one. We'll get to that one. We'll talk about dogs first. <laughs> the hounds of war. The dogs, of course, have uh, long been depicted as participants in warfare in both uh, artistic motifs and literary texts. You know, the whole cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war, just with a bit more gusto than maybe Tristan can oblige. Cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. Much better. Thank you, Tristan. I mean, the the role of dogs in ancient warfare seems to have been quite varied. So, for example, in the third millennium BC Mesopotamia, dogs are often depicted in warfare artwork as being active participants alongside human soldiers and their horses. That's the one. And <laughs> indeed, burials have been excavated and present both equid, so like horses, 
and caked calid remains from this time period also suggest that both animals were subjected to burial practices to designate their roles in warfare, as well as the notion that dogs were often fed equines based on taphonomic signatures, among which also dog gnawing that maybe may have either died in battle or were bred as special feed for army dogs. Yeah, so the weird thing though, even though we have this kind of cultural assumption that, you know, we have these dogs of war, there actually isn't that much evidence available, at least speaking with regards to like antiquity. There's not that much evidence available to kind of provide specific information regarding the role they played in battle. So whether or not they were like specifically warrior dogs or if they had a more passive role in the military. So there's a similar kind of fogginess, so not just in Mesopotamia, but also in Greek warfare. There's uncertainty as to whether or not dogs had a very specific role in military operations. So we do have evidence, a lot of textual evidence, for specifically bred war dogs. And this comes from writers like Plutarch. And there are other ancient texts that suggest the presence of dogs in warfare. But again, it's kind of difficult to ascertain if dogs were specifically being bred and trained as warriors, or if they were kind of incidental additions to the military. So like, you know, a domestic dog just kind of wanders into an encampment, gets adopted, and just kind of is part of the military. Or, you know, domestic dogs were taken and kind of subsumed into warfare, whether or not they were just hunting dogs. There's a lot of uncertainty around like a particular role i mean to be fair it's probably a combination of all of those things for sure yeah. I, I mean as you said yourself that there were sort of specific sort of war dog breeds and you get that from roman texts so again if you're playing bingo along romans uh <laughs> Ashikyu, like the romans in particular i think they bred sort of a variety of dogs for a variety of purposes from your herding mm-hmm. your hunting dogs so there is definitely literary evidence for war dogs, but uh, of course, in terms of what they looked like, that information has now been lost to us, and we can only recover like what is possible from the literary sources. But I think probably some of that, and that goes for a lot of the species that will go through, the lack of evidence in a way of actual sort of material evidence may have to do with the fact that sort of the archaeology of warfare is not necessarily understudied, mm. but a bit harder to locate because battlefields won't leave as much of a trace on the archaeological record. And of course, there's also there's a lot of trial and errors to locate battlefields. So that might also have something to do with a lack of evidence as well. Yeah, especially when we get when we're talking about antiquity as well, where you don't necessarily have extremely specialized. Obviously, you do have specialized kind of weaponry and technology, but realistically, it's not necessarily that much different than you know hunting gear, or you know, it could there could be multiple things happening. And additionally, what really complicates things is that, and we're going back a bit to dogs in particular, there might be some modern day or at least contemporary rewriting of history, if not just kind of selective rewriting of history. Uh, There's been some theories and discussion that maybe the idea of this kind of lineage of military dogs in ancient Greece is part of like a modern mythologization of lineage to support the use of dogs in World War I. So whether or not it's just been kind of a bit of propaganda that's kind of been subsumed into our 
popular notions of war dogs. We don't know. But we do have archaeological evidence for the symbolic importance of dogs in warfare. Clearly, you know, even if they weren't necessarily always soldiers or whatever, there was associations between dogs and canids and the art of war. So, for example, in southern Russia, at the site of Krasnosarmarkoye, the remains of approximately 64 dogs and wolves from the second millennium were found bearing signs of butchery. So the archaeologists who worked on this site believed that it was actually part of a warrior ritual in which dogs and wolves were ritually eaten, potentially while the participants were also wearing dog skins, which has been observed in other Indo-European traditions. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's given some, some very strong berserker vibes. Yeah, so there were at least connotations there which, again, can be used as evidence to support that we did have war dogs. But again, you know, it's always going to be a bit unclear. But moving on to something a little more ridiculous. Because, I mean, we couldn't do an episode about animals in warfare without mentioning the pig. The pig. The pig, everyone. It's it's, it's Um, not really archaeological. It's more based on ancient texts. Cry havoc, let loose the hogs of war. See what I did there? What? Instead of dogs, hogs, you know? There's definitely a PS1 game that was called, like, the Hogs of War, and it was, like, Battle Pigs. It was great. Isn't there also the song? Oh, of course, there's also War Pigs, the song. But I remember the PS1 game too, okay? Generals gathered in their messes. I... You're like the same age as me, are you not? No. Oh no, no, you're just a couple of years younger. No, no, she, she's a whole three years younger. Two, yeah. yeah, but like, come on, PS1 is not out of the realm of possibility here. It's not, but I just wanted an excuse to dunk on you. Oh yeah, dunk on me for that. <sighs> anyway, right. back to our 35 feral ho- hogs. <laughs> <laughs> that, that should be in the bingo. I feel that the 35, 35 to 50 feral hogs should also be in the big Yeah, list. we should be working that in more into the show. That's on me. I'm sorry, everyone, for letting you down. Anyway, so military writers such as Polyanus and Alien, they wrote about pigs used in war. Allegedly, King Porus from ancient Punjab in India taught Alexander the Great to use pigs to deter elephants, which were used in warfare at the time by leaders such as Hannibal, more on him later, and Pyrrhus. Both the ancient Greeks and Romans have apparently used pigs to drive back war elephants by letting them loose and setting them on fire. Which I think would defeat most enemies... Because I, yeah, you would just sit there, right, and be like, "What are they? Do- are those pigs on fire?" It's like as as horrible and disgusting as that is. Like, I want to know the thought process. How do you get from A to B? Right, we've got this battle. I'm not sure how we're going to win. Oh yeah, no, I tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get this pig. We're going to set it on fire and then just let it loose towards the I- enemy. To be fair, it was used to defeat Pyrrhus in Italy in 275 BC, Antigonus Gonatus in Greece in 270 BC. So there is precedence I'm, for using I'm, them. I'm not questioning the results. I'm just questioning <laughs> the, 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 well, the methods primarily and also the thought process. Just how did you get from A to B? Like from how do we win this battle to Flaming Pig? 
Would it surprise you to know that this is not the only war elephant deterrent that we will be talking about this episode? There were many theories about how do we defeat the war elephants. And our next one will also be a bit, well... Yeah. Well, it's another sort of well-known animal for its role in warfare, and that is the camel. Yes. Well, to be fair, unsurprisingly, camels have been used as pack animals for military operations, given that you know that they are the main go-to beast of burden for arid and dry desert regions. But they've also been utilised as mounts, so particularly for archers, due to their height in comparison with horses. Because depending on the sort of the world region, they would be valued over horses as they're not only less nervous creatures who can carry heavier loads than horses but they're also able to endure longer without water which again arid areas massive advantage and they were also apparently observed to scare horses due to their smell (laughs) and added bonus that they could trample enemies which i guess not unlike horses but they they, they got big chunky toes camels so perhaps more effectively so In the Arabian Peninsula, it appears that camels were not instrumental to military operations until after the invention of the South Arabian saddle in 1200 BC. Sure, we've discussed that before in our episode on camels. We did, yes. Well, camelids. So if you're interested, go back on our catalogue for an entire hour of camels. But yes, so this saddle allowed for better use of the animal, sort of better control of the animal during combat. And depictions of mounted warriors on camels are found throughout the iconography of many bad reliefs in the region, including those uh, found at the site of Asurbanapal Palace in Nineveh. According to some accounts... Here we go. I tried. I tried. Uh, <laughs> according to some accounts... Camels were used by the Assyrians in the 9th century BC to deter war elephants, but not in a way you would expect. So more specifically, they would be dressed up to look like other elephants and thus confusing enemy elephants by looking similar, yet smelling different. As you may expect, this failed horribly. Yes, so not only were they like, oh, camels could probably fend off the elephants because you know they do smell and this you know this could be useful but we're also going to take oxen hides i believe dye it and dress them up to look like other elephants i couldn't find in my cursory research i couldn't find like the actual i don't think we really have an idea of how the the actual thought process went down but i desperately need to know as you go, that's an experimental archaeology project for someone. So grab a camel. A couple of camels. <laughs> put oxides on them and then take them close to an elephant and see what they do. Yes. I also feel like, again, like thought process A to B. But also, like, how about, just as a wild punt here, just devise a better military strategy? To be fair, to be fair, there is another account, this one of about King Darius of Persia in 520 BC, that showcases a much more successful use of camels to deter war elephants, because they basically just had them carry around a lot of like fire and flaming materials. They weren't on fire, like the pigs, they were just carrying fire. So maybe, I don't know why no one's really figured this out, but it might be that the fire scares the elephants? That's my hot take. Literally, hot take. I mean, uh, the, the fire does tend to scare most animals. Yeah. So, but, yeah. Fire starting camels. 
I mean, the good thing is that the, the camels themselves weren't put on fire, although I couldn't tell if it was that they were dragging carts or something that had flaming materials or if they literally just like put something on fire on top of the camels. It didn't seem like they were on fire themselves. Well, I guess in, in a way, because camels were so valuable in certain cultures and like in certain instances preferred over horses, mm-hmm. I would like to think that you wouldn't just set 50 of your camels on fire because that's even from a very dispassionate point of view, it's a valuable resource that you've literally just burned. Yeah. You'd, you'd hope, but you know. Stranger things have happened in our world. Yeah, but it is surprising to find out that so much of the history of animals and warfare seems to center around figuring out what scares elephants. Who knew? But as King Darius tried to dress them up. This is true. Only, Only one person tried to dress them up. And But hey, I never really thought about the archers thing. And in retrospect, that does make sense. And we'll be talking about more mounted archer combat later on the episode. But I think for now, we're going to um, take a break. And when we come back, we'll maybe talk about an animal that is kind of weird that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, although maybe. But although while we do take the break, take that time to picture how a camel dressed up as an elephant would look like. And if you're artistically minded, please send us a fan art. Please do. Please, please, please. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And we are back with episode 58 of Archaeo Animals. We're talking about the zooarchaeology of animals in warfare. And if you're listening this far, you're probably going, hey, it's really weird. They haven't talked about horses yet. Aren't horses like super important to the history of warfare? Aren't they like basically the animal of warfare? Well, yes, we didn't forget. So never doubt us. It's extremely important, actually, that we talk about horses. And that's why we're doing it in the second segment. So we have enough time to cover as much as possible, given that it is the most important animal to warfare, albeit not so much these days. As we've discussed in a 
many of our previous episodes, of which I believe that there must be someone one episode that's entirely on equids or horses anyway. It is. One of our like first couple of episodes, we did a horse episode. A, a horse, of course. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely the title, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) So if you've been following us for a wee while, because also we forgot to mention, by the time this episode is out, it will be our fifth year anniversary of running this show. Will it? So we've gone from uh, our anniversary episode being on fish to flaming pigs. I'm not sure whether that's an improvement. Yes, be five years of us doing this. So nearly five years ago... One of our very first episodes was about horses. We haven't gotten any better either, so... Posterity shall judge. But yes, if you've been following us for a while, you might have heard us mentioning, you know, like uh, on a variety of episodes that horses throughout history and in most world regions have been seen as a particularly valuable animal for humans. They're useful for travelling long distances in short amounts of time, can be used as beats of burden, and eventually they also become crucial elements of military operations. So our earliest evidence of horses in warfare can be traced back to prehistoric burials, where sort of paleopathology and associated grave goods have been able to give archaeologists a better idea of what roles horses might have played in the conflict. As a quick aside for paleopathology, by that we mean the study and analysis, I can speak English, of pathologies in ancient remains, that being injuries, diseases, and Excellent. so forth. Have we done an episode about paleopathology? I can't remember. I believe we have done. It's probably quite early on as well. But mm-hmm. a way to quickly sort of summarize that in most instances, a lot of pathologies look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Because unless there is a very obvious break, normally bone reacts in two ways to infection or just a very generic insult to the organism. It either creates more bone or it reduces bone. So, Yeah, and we also don't have the greatest kind of collective resources for paleopathology, especially in comparison to human remains. So it's not that it's understudied, but I feel like it's a bit on the side sometimes. But yes, so paleopathology with regards specifically to sort of horses in warfare, the main sort of pathological, if you will, signs that sign that you will notice is um, anomalous dental wear. So more specifically, there'll be a distinct smoothing on the surface of the premolars where the bit would sit. So now that won't necessarily be indicative of the animal being used in warfare, but just that they were wearing a bit for whatever reason, whether they were just being used as means of transport or warfare or indeed as beasts of burden. Yeah, I mean, this is where there's a bit of a disclaimer that for paleopathology, a lot of our evidence could, and I mean, this is kind of goes for a lot of, in general, warfare evidence, as Simona pointed out in the first segment, it can be something else, maybe. So, you know, always take it with a bit of salt, but these paleopathological characteristics are more or less, you'll see them in war horses. Although, again, you'd see them in other kind of domesticated horses, too. But I guess also like it, it, it depends sort of on the severity of the pathology and also the yes. accumulation of more than one. So, like, if you have several sort of pathologies that could be associated with using the horse for warfare, then it makes it more likely. So, of course, yeah, we have the bit where another one is the transverse uh, vertebral and vertebral end plate fractures, 
So that would be fissures that run horizontally across the vertebral end plates. can also occur near the rear of the horse due to the strain sort of being put on the animal uh, by poorly fitted saddles or extensive amounts of horse riding. Again, like further lesions of bone, particularly on the vertebrae, again, from when the horse is being ridden, these can all be traced to sort of extensive horse riding which can indeed be linked to warfare or just, you know, very long transport. Again, pinch of salt, all that. And of course, you know, I guess the clearer giveaway would be (laughs) outright injury caused by extensive trauma or weaponry. So either healed or otherwise fatal. This includes, will include your punctures, perforations, heavy impact sites found in bones, especially among the ribs and cranium, or if you're particularly Luck, well, lucky, or well, I don't know, can find a whole, find all harrowheads just lodged into the ribs. Mm. A particular example I'm thinking of was with a deer, I believe. Yes, uh, it was. But that's sort of roughly sort of the kind of pathology that you would expect from a horse that has been used in warfare. Mm. And with regards to grave goods, many horse burials also include the deposition of artifacts relating to not just horseback riding and war horses, but more broadly of combat, often related to kind of war or battle rituals. Mark that down if you haven't already on your bingo cards. So just some examples. There's obviously many, many horse burials, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. And I think this is where When we talk about evidence of warfare being sketchy in the archaeology, this has been a little bit more solidified because horses, again, being high status, often had their own particular burial rites. So RNA'd horse burial sites in Denmark have often uh, had horses that displayed many of the previously discussed pathologies, as well as items buried alongside them, such as horse bits chain reins so they're much heavier and thus often associated with warfare spurs saddles as well as even weaponry such as swords lances spears bows and arrows and shields so these burials in particular have been interpreted as potentially ritual depositions of horses and weaponry from defeated enemies now, also in Denmark, the lake site of Eolarup Audel had a deposit of equipment and weaponry from over 400 Germanic warriors and also included the remains of four horses. So the deposit overall was interpreted as a third century weapon sacrifice due to the systematic and extensive destruction of most of the artifacts prior to being deposited at the bottom of the lake. But the horses, as well as one cow, were also likely ritually sacrificed due to sharing very similar extensive injuries. And again, because of the associations between warfare and horses, that was probably why horses were chosen for this particular ritual. I have one question, though. Yes. Do you think the cow may have been disguised as a horse? How did I know you were going to ask that? (laughs) I mean... If, you know, I, I, I haven't figured out if the timelines work out. I think they do. If they'd heard of the camel incident, maybe it was one big shout out to that. I mean, so yeah, like we've 
covered pathology, covered grave goods. Of course, there's other artefacts as well that relate to technological advances in horse riding that can also give us clues on how horses were being used in combat. For example, the presence of saddles, stirrups and harnesses illustrate advances in using horses as mounts in combat, among other things. In Britain, the appearance of winged chapes in the first millennium BC is associated with the earliest iteration of uh, combat on horseback as chapes were used at the end of sword scabbards to draw them while on horseback. And obviously the introduction of chariots and carts also showcased the variety in horse-driven combat as well. And again, I believe we, we've talked about chariot burials in a previous episode. I assume any ritual thing we've talked about, to be completely honest, I feel like that's a safe bet. Probably. And again, these the sort of ritual depositions of that sort do tend to feature horses heavily because, again, as we discussed, horses were very valuable. Yes. Which incidentally would make them a, a good candidate, uh, alas, for the horse, uh, for ritual sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, it happens. So another, and this one's a bit more anecdotal, but the rise of defended settlements in late Bronze Age Britain has been used as kind of evidence that maybe there was increased use of horses in raiding parties and attacks. Obviously, horses mean you could travel longer distances and you have a bit of an advantage when it comes to raiding settlements. So that would necessitate further defense mechanisms and defensive structures. Yeah, we also get uh, evidence of armoured cavalries that may have been first introduced by either the Persians or the Sarmatians, which were then adopted by the Romans. This is not only required, not, not only required the development of armour specifically for horses, but also for the breeding of larger, stronger horses that would be able to carry both its own armour and that of the soldier sitting atop of it. And again, that's a, just a recurring trend throughout this. They're just these poor animals. Yeah, and I obviously the tradition of horse armor carried on throughout the Middle Ages. And if anyone, I'm sure this is the case. I think also at the Royal Armories in Leeds. But again, as a New Yorker, I have to shout this out: the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan has a really great collection of horse armor from the Middle Ages. It used to be one of my favorite things to go visit. Check it out if you are in the area. Uh, we can also get further information sort of on training techniques uh, for horses in warfare from a variety of written sources. So one such example is the work of Xenophon, a Greek historian and military commander, and he writes extensively on cavalry tactics in his era. And our horses were able to give militaries the advantage with their mobility and agility, particularly against foot soldiers. Though more recently, there's been a large archaeological study of war horses in the Middle Ages that was completed by both archaeologists and zooarchaeologists at the University of Exeter. And that, in a way, was the first systematic study undertaken on war horses during that, that time period. And it focused on understanding how war horses were being bred and trained and how their development changed alongside changes in war horse use from the Norman period all the way through the Tudor period. And the research actually brought up a lot of the things we've already talked about as far as it being difficult to really identify war horses, especially as they've realized there's archaeological research supported historical records that indicated 
warhorses were actually quite diverse, especially in their size. There wasn't just one kind of horse that was utilized in England for military operations, although they were definitely smaller than perhaps what we have previously assumed. If you read texts, and I think there's also a popular assumption that isn't helped by, you know, period dramas and stuff that war horses were these massive, massive horses. When in actuality, when doing biometric analysis on war horse remains, they were actually very rarely over 15 hands high. And just a quick note that hands is how you kind of measure heights for horses. And they're equivalent to... (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, just like, because, yeah, like the hands, as you said, uh, it is how like height and horses, just for horses, is measured. And it's just very infuriating when carrying out biometrics because you'll get your measurements and you get your your actual measurement, and then you have to find a way to go and convert it to hands, and it's like, Ugh. okay. So yeah, <laughs> a, a hand is about four inches, which surprisingly is also how I measure my tattoos. Um, so I've, I've secretly been measuring myself as a horse this whole time. So, <laughs> Do you also disguise as a horse? Uh, some people may say that about me. A very small horse, just like these war horses. So yeah, anyway. Hands are equal to about four inches, so 15 hands high is about 60 inches or five feet, which means I am slightly taller than a warhorse. I could take on a warhorse easily. Please don't take that as an endorsement, listener. Please. Please. I mean, I've got a vendetta against horses, given that I was thrown off one once, and that hurt, so... Yeah, but it's more about the liability of encouraging somebody to, you know, partake in these kind of things. Let's not do that. Yes, don't don't charge at a warhorse. <laughs> uh, please don't. Anyway, so not only is there kind of issues with sizes and them being smaller than what we thought, the other issue is that there are very few medieval horse graves identified, with only one mass medieval horse cemetery known in England, actually located at Overton Street, London. And this was likely due to a common practice of processing horse remains after death so that the owners could profit off their skins to be used in tanneries. And I guess if in the most practical and kind of eh sense, it guess it makes sense because it's a lot of money that would be put into war horses as far as breeding and training them. Uh, not that I condone that, obviously, but that's what happened. And that's why we really don't have many designated war horse burials. Ultimately, it appears that the desired traits for a war horse really changed throughout the Middle Ages. We can't really say that this is the one war horse type that we have. So ultimately, we had a diversity of characteristics that were identified in war horse remains. And this also made sense because over time, military tactics and cultural preferences would constantly be in flux. So you really couldn't just have one type of war horse. It really depended on the cultural context and the time period you were in. And it also could be that behavioral traits, so temperament, was actually more valuable than just the kind of physical traits that we would be able to identify in the archaeological record. So still a lot of unknowns, but Alex is taller than the warhorse. Thanks, University of Exeter. <laughs> but yeah, and the behavior probably would have played a very important role because, I mean, you can have the biggest and chunkiest warhorse that anyone has ever bred. And then if it's super flighty, it would be 
no good to you. No, instead you would have a chonky Alex-shaped warhorse. And to be fair, my temperament is pretty bad, so actually, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> if um, anyone wants to draw me as a warhorse, I will take that fan art. So, um, <laughs> d- d- during this uh, a nice moment of self-reflection, I think we will take a break and move on to case studies after uh, everyone's favorite segment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back with episode 58 of Archaeo Animals. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of animals in warfare. And we are at everyone's favorite part of the episode it's fine whatever no evidence to back that up although i don't think we've ever talked about this on mic but this is something we've discussed in our podcast group chat uh, it may be that one of us me did that thing with uh the the ai thing and put in our podcast name and asked it to write up a summary and it, even the AI knew <laughs> that the case studies were, were an important part of this podcast. So I don't know if I've manifested that into reality or what. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing good work, folks. Yeah. But yeah, uh, favorite, everyone's favorite segment. That's also the bingo card, which I must say is the bingo card that doesn't actually exist. So if someone wants to actually create a digital bingo card, then... Yeah, I realize I don't know how you make a bingo card because it'd have to be different every time. So you'd have to like random. I don't... No, 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 no. Okay. So the bingo <laughs> card is going to be, okay. right, a four by three square. Okay. And during an, it's an episode bingo card for the stuff that we bring up every single time. So like Simona's Romans. Yeah. Or, you know, like somebody, you know, Alex makes some reference to where she came from in America. You know, those kind of things. And then you kind of tick them off across the episode. Okay. And if there's a case study, yeah. So we make, just make one and it goes for all the episodes, okay? Okay. Don't I, worry. Don't complicate okay. it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for helping my brain relax. Although I think the free space should be case studies. Okay. You can have whatever you want. Okay. If anybody is good at making bingo cards, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Anyway, so case studies. We are going to start with the tale of, I guess, maybe the other animal that I think about when I think about animals in warfare, particularly here in Britain, because, you know, World War One is very much in, and World War Two. both World Wars are very much in the imagination of the populace and 
you know, monuments and culturally speaking. So obviously felt like it would be right to talk about the homing pigeon. So uh, pigeons were most famously used during World War One and World War II as homing pigeons, delivering messages more reliably than radio equipment at the time. So they were specifically bred from rock pigeons and were very useful due to their speed and the difficulty in being shot down by enemies. In fact, I came across a, a note that the only real downside was that if you <laughs> sent out a homing pigeon too late in the day, they might go off and nestle down for the evening, which is very cute. Even <laughs> Sorry, my messenger to take a nap. Yeah, you know, I get it. I mean, as someone who is a bit anti-pigeon, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from New York, so they're, they're kind of everywhere, but it's kind of cute to think about them snuggling in after sending a message <laughs> <laughs> but it ain't much but it's honest work yes but yeah their value their services had become so valuable that it actually became law that shooting one down was punishable by either six months jail time or a 100 pound fine which was obviously much more back then Yes, there's a bit of a pop culture reference. There's a whole episode about this in the last season of 80s British historical comedy show Blackadder. So oh, yes. Blackadder goes forth. There's a whole yeah. episode where Captain Blackadder accidentally, well, not so accidentally, shoots his general's pigeon, Speckled Jim. Wonderful. Look it up. Comedy gold. Fun fact about me, I watched the entirety of Blackadder on YouTube because that was back in the day when people would just upload full TV shows onto YouTube and I was a teenage Anglophile. It's the darkest secret you'll know about me. I thought <laughs> I thought I was much cooler than all my other American friends because I watched British television. Oh, it's like, I don't know, this is very, very basic. <laughs> It's very bad. It's not good. It's not. It's, it's a, okay. It's, like, it's a truly we, dark secret. We all have these things in our past that we'd rather have buried. So don't worry. I won't give one up that easily. But you know, maybe if you listen to all the episodes, you'll find something out. You find that he's actually been leaving traces that we'll, we'll every, every a... syllable of every sort of word that he says actually combines together to reveal his darkest secret. Okay, okay. Well, well you know, like maybe we should have a confessional episode sometime, you know? Oh, we don't have time. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> we don't have time. Anyway, by World War II, approximately 250,000 pigeons were recruited by Britain for use during the war. So you're probably thinking, what's the archaeology part of this? Well, weirdly enough, in 2012 in London, the remains of a World War II homing pigeon was actually recovered from an unused chimney. So preservation was actually not bad, as it included an articulated foot, which still had a container holding a coded message that ultimately was declared unbreakable by the UK government, but was lightly sent as part of the D-Day landings, which is really cool. And it's not the only kind of preserved remains of a homing pigeon. 
Many other homing pigeons seem to have found final resting places in museums around the world, including G.I. Joe, an American pigeon whose work resulted in 100 Britons being saved in Italy and is currently taxidermied in New Jersey. Oh, that poor pigeon. <laughs> of all the places to end up. Yeah, kind of like, you know, is it a punishment? Is it a reward? I'm not going to say anything. You will other- be immortalized. Where where will I be immortalized? New Jersey. <laughs> I was trying to think, though. I feel like there is, in America at least, I feel like there's multiple either taxidermied or articulated homing pigeons. In I feel like they're in, like, Ripley's Believe It or Not places or something. Do you know what? It, it's like, yeah, what, what are the other places in the middle of America where, like, these taxidermied pigeons are? It's like, you are in Ohio. You are in Missouri, like Nebraska, you know, Utah. It's like these per pigeons. Wow, really just m- multiple states you're, <laughs> you're putting in the crosshairs there. I didn't say it, just saying. I didn't say anything about it at all. And then Alex is the one with the hot takes. Oh, yeah, then Alex, you just disagree with me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I will say we could absolutely do a whole episode on the cult, the American Americana side uh, roadside attraction type of zoo archaeology, which would probably just be an hour of me talking. But if you don't know, it's extremely fascinating. There's a lot of weird, rich cultural history of very strange taxidermies. It's the only thing that makes me proud to be an American sometimes. Anyway. I feel like you've mentioned that enough times that we should probably do that now. We probably should. I think I might have mentioned it in the cryptid episodes that we've done. Yes, I believe so. Yes, it's very, very special. A very special part of our culture in America. (laughs) Anyway, Um, we'll come to something a bit more realistic, or is it? Who knows, maybe. Yeah, because I mean, we've uh, we've hinted uh, at these creatures enough time. We figured yes. it'll probably be time to actually talk about them. I mean, we've talked about other animals trying to impersonate them, but they're just posers. It turns out. Do people still say poser? Oh, I but it's elephants, everyone. Elephants in warfare, and specifically Hannibal's elephants. So, as we've mentioned, elephants in warfare, you know, have been extensively used since about 3,000 years ago, and predominantly in ancient India. Of course, that is for good reason. I mean, elephants are chonky boys that give off a sense of strength. (laughs) I think, no, I think we can't use chonky boys here when we're talking about warfare. Elephants are massive, massive creatures that if you saw one barreling down towards you, I think you would also, you know, collapse in fear. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I mean, it, they're quite fear-inspiring in, in the battlefield. Their size would also allow for their use as mounts for archers, similarly to camels, just much, you know, on a bigger, bigger, taller scale. But they would also be used as weapons of sorts, so to crush enemies underfoot, destroy barricades, siege machines, and whatnot. Of course, there are some downsides to elephant riding as well, believe it or not. Elephants are, of course, not quite as agile as horses, and losing control wasn't terribly uncommon, especially if they were frightened, say, by a flaming pig Mm. or or a camel dressed up as an elephant. This meant there was a high chance of friendly fire and collateral damage. 
But overall, it was mostly their imposing sort of fear-inducing presence that was most valued and weaponized as part of well, what is known as psychological warfare, particularly if your enemy wasn't familiar with elephants. I mean, imagine you've never seen an elephant before in your life and you see sort of this massive creature just barreling towards you, as Alex said. N- not, not a good time. Yeah, you would go, oh my gosh, what is that giant camel doing? <laughs> it smells a bit weird for a camel. Yeah, it's a bit strange. <laughs> so now that we have that context, let's talk about Hannibal, who was a military general for Carthage that led the charge against the Romans during the Second Punic War, which was about 218 to 201 BC. So... Perhaps the most famous part of the war, and I mean, like, if, even if you don't know about the, Punic, the Second Punic War, you probably have heard of Hannibal and his invasion of Italy in 218 BC, which was the kind of culmination of what was a winter-long trek uh, involving the crossing of the Alps with 37 elephants. So the elephants themselves were likely small North African forest elephants, which were probably intended to be used more as weapons than really as mounts. So according to historical accounts, all but one elephant died during the winter journey in the Alps, who would have thought? And yeah. Hannibal, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but Hannibal would actually have to get a new supply of elephants for his military campaign in 215 BC. So you're thinking, wow, 36 elephants died in the Alps. We must have so much zooarchaeological evidence to support this event, right? No. No, not really. <laughs> it's kind of depressing, actually, when you think about it, because that would be so cool. I mean, yeah, because not only have there yet to be any elephant remains identified linked to this particular event, we're also actually not entirely sure where exactly Hannibal's trek through the Alps occurred. Uh, although, you know, there's been some extensive sort of geological work done to attempt to pinpoint this journey. But again, as is often the case for sort of uh, the archaeological warfare, being able to pinpoint sort of ancient troop movements and battles, not quite that clear cut. I mean, there were fossilized elephantine remains found in Italy that were identified as Hannibal's infamous army during the 16th century, a theory that was seen as fact until the 19th century. So. Yeah, it was... Yeah, <laughs> I get it. In, in 19th century, scholars eventually re- rejected this idea, and this is mainly due to the work of uh, Giovanni Sergioni Tozzetti, who demonstrated an early use of what is now basic zooarchaeological and taphonomic analysis and identified that the elephantine fossils were, well, fossils, and thus, thus much, much older representative of a wider distribution of the ancient elephant populations that existed in Europe at some point in the past. These were actually closer in anatomy to the Asian elephants as opposed to the African elephants that a Hannibal would have used. Yeah, it was. it's actually a really interesting read um, to give a little bit more context. So there were a lot of fossilized elephants, you know, ancient elephant remains found in Italy. So prior to the 16th century, of course, a lot of the theories were more about a race of giants, dragons, that sort of thing. And I believe we actually will be doing an episode at some point soon in the near future about these kinds of early identifications of unusual animal remains. And I believe Which another way, fair one. Enough. Like if you've never seen yeah. one of those animals before and you'd like you just dig it up in your like while you're digging your bridge and furrows and go, oh, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, like I totally get it. And I believe there's also some theories that were more biblical in nature about, you know, Noah's Ark and some things like that. Because fair enough, if you're finding even the 16th century or even before the 16th century, so, you know, 14th, 15th century, finding elephant remains in Italy, you're still kind of like, what just happened? What is this? But it does kind of make sense, though, when this theory was posited that maybe this is Hannibal's army. Again, some more to context. I believe a lot of these remains were found in caves, which would make sense for what they actually probably represent. But I think the theory was, you know, oh, Hannibal's army clearly stayed in this cave and and some of the elephants passed away then. So... It's not the the wildest theory, really, when you think about it. No, 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 not at all. Alas, we've still not found Hannibal's elephants. If you have found Hannibal's elephants and you're holding on to the information, please let us know. We'd love to break that news. But also, shout out to uh, to Zeddy, who I guess is kind of like an early zooarchaeologist. It's really was interesting. I never actually heard of his name before, but it was really interesting to read about this kind of early proto taphonomic analysis. And he kind of got it on the money. <laughs> so good for you. Probably better than what I can do. Also interesting, I mean, while not archaeology, because it is fossilized elephantine remains, yes. but it's interesting to see that they're actually closer in anatomy to the Asian elephants. Yeah, I was trying to do some further research because it doesn't seem like anyone's really identified them to species. I guess it depends where in Italy as well. Because, of course, as we discussed in our Pleistocene mammals episode, please go look it up if that's your cup of tea. I did mention that there was a species of elephant that was native to Sicily in the Pleistocene. They were very, very, very small because of that sort of island effect where sort of like the what would normally be seen as megafauna was actually really, really small and the microfauna was actually very, very big. But we do have elephant remains, which I'm sure, but again, that goes for a lot of Sicilian fauna. They tend to be sort of the same species or subspecies as the North African variety. Mm. But there you go. So that, that closer to Asian elephants, I just thought that was like that, that just, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so kind of a, a nice way to end our episode on warfare. <laughs> Wasn't the the most nice topic to talk about, but, you know, something we got to talk about, I guess. But like I said, if you want us to do more episodes like this, or if you have a request for another type of episode, let us know. You can contact us at ArcheoAnimals on Twitter. You can find us where you get your podcasts and also on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash animals. Like and subscribe if you haven't already. Review us. Tell your friends about us. And as always, I'm reformed Anglophile Alex Fitzpatrick. And Simona Falanga. Thank you for joining us and making it till the end. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers and the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Come.